The lifeboats of the RNLI have been saving lives in Irish and UK waters since 1824. Almost entirely run by volunteers, the RNLI have rescued over 144,000 lives since founded, often in very challenging conditions. Hello and welcome to the Met Iron Podcast. I'm Noel Fitzpatrick. In this episode, I'm visiting the Sligo Bay Lifeboat Station and speaking with the crew on how they carry out their vital work and the impact that weather can have on their operations. I was first joined by Willie Murphy. Willie is the operations manager for the Sligo Lifeboat crew. And we took a tour of the station and we followed the route that the crew would take when they come in after a call has been raised. No, you're very welcome to Ross's Bay and uh, Ross's Point. It's a good year to come. We're 25 years on the go this year, so we're, Great. we're celebrating in a way. Yeah. Um, quick run around the station, and I suppose the, the easiest thing to do is maybe to follow the trail of the crew. That's great. As, yeah. as they would, you know, if they were coming in for a shout. So, the, um, if you can imagine the pages have gone off, and people respond, and the first place they come into is this changing area basically where they have their uh, their various personal protective equipment PPE we call it and it's uh, basically a number of different units to it there's a, a a layer to keep you warm basically because even on a good summer's day when the boat has gone fast the wind chill will cool you down then there's a good dry suit on top of that reinforced shoes and then the helmet life jacket and in the life jacket, there's a lot more equipment. So basically, everybody barrels in here first. Um, and is, is the same kit all year round usually? Same kit all year round. There is a, they, there's a change in the under layer they can wear. They can put on a, a summer and a winter one. Um, but generally, they, they use the, the one the whole time. And um, we have a good mix of male and female crew. We have 26 in total that actually either go to sea or launch the lifeboat. Are those 26 on sort of on duty all the time or is it a roster or? Yeah, um, what we do is we need four people to crew the boat, one of whom has to be a helm, who are, who are the more senior, so the boat commanders. So you need those four and you need a couple of people then to help launch the boat and man the radio. So you need about six. And the way we operate is that everybody's on call all the time. And when the pages go off, those who can come down now, naturally, some people will be away, some people will be shopping, some people might be in hospital or whatever. Um, but on average, we'll get maybe a dozen or more Great. attending. The only time we do run a roster is sort of state occasions, you know, like Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve, where we know people will be at parties and that you put a duty crew on then. But normally, um, it's everybody's on call all the time. And it's a, it's a big ask from anyone to carry a pager and have it beside the bed at night, but that's, that's what people do. The crew are... I suppose there was a time years ago when everybody in the Orn Loud had something to do with the sea, whether fishermen or merchant but now it's a total mix of people. So without going into names, just a rough idea, a mechanic, psychiatric nurse, charter boat operator, insurance, IT, charter boat, engineer on a trawler, um, IT admin and writes children's books, uh, lobster fisherman, Nurse, fisheries officer, IT, shellfish farmer, uh, court service, physio, OT, painter, charter skipper. So there's a full. That's a full, great mix. Full yes. mix of people. Yeah, yeah. And again, we have 
we have a separate changing area for the female crew. And uh, again, big mix of people, teacher, physio, doctor, accountant, uh, environmental scientist, so the whole, the whole mix of people. So this is the boat hall. It's um, pretty big. It was originally built for an all-weather lifeboat, but this is what we have. It's an Atlantic 85. Really good boats, really good inshore boats. Cost about a quarter of a million. And when you say inshore, what do you mean by that? Well, I suppose in, in one sense you're talking about not going too far off, but more importantly, they're not all weather boats in that there's weather restrictions on when they can launch and what they can deal with. Now, they're very capable boats, but the window that we look at is 4-7 in daylight hours and 4-6 at night. Now, again, there's a lot of thinking to be done in terms of launching the life. Of course. Yeah. But you can take it, you can take it that would say it 4-7 easterly here would be nothing like a 4-7 westerly. So there's a lot yeah. of local sort of decision making around the edges of those, those limits. Um, so but the, the local knowledge is very important there for it that. It is in terms of the launch, yeah. Beyond that, you're looking at an all-weather lifeboat. The, the name suggests what it can do. It can go out in anything. And uh, the nearest all-weather lifeboats to us are in Ballyglass and Aranmore Island, which is a bit of a distance. As we continued the tour, we were joined by Ethna Davis. Ethna is one of the helms at the Sligo Lifeboat Station. This means that she pilots the uh, lifeboat. And Ethna very kindly gave me a detailed tour of the boat itself. So maybe if I just go from the bow of the boat and bring you that would through be from bow to stern. There's a huge amount of equipment in this boat and there's a constant toss up between speed and weight. So we could carry a million and one different things, mm -hmm. but we really have to prioritize what may be useful, okay. and what may be critical. And it's everything here that's on the boat really is here because it can save our lives or somebody else's. Um, all the trimmings are, are cut away. So from the, from the bow here, we have a sea anchor. So it's a drogue. So okay. I'm sure you've used similar equipment for, for different tasks but it's like a parachute that goes out the front of the boat okay. and creates drag, so you always face into the wind. So if engines fail or that, it just holds the boat head to wind, so it's, a much, it's by far the most stable, steady platform to work from okay. and not get horribly sick from <laughs> <Some> <laughs> bouncing all important. over the place. And it slows you down as well. So, but obviously, it's going to slow you from weather, but not from the tide, because okay. it's still in the water. Of course. So we've got a... A, a traditional anchor, I was going to say a proper anchor, but a traditional anchor here as well. Um, yes. That covers that one. Okay. That, that actually attaches you, obviously, to the, to the seabed. So the driving equipment on the, on the dashboard here, on the console, we've got uh, a compass, which is the tried and true. We don't mess with it. <laughs> it's always there when everything else fails. Absolutely. The compass, The compass still works. Um, various tachometers and a lot of information that comes through on the little uh, readout screens here as to depth, speed over ground, course over ground. Um, yeah, all sorts of bits and bobs that might be useful to us here. We've got independent start on the two different engines, so you can use one or both. Okay, And great. you can choose whether you want one, one or the other to be on at any given time. Um, what, kind of, just... uh, what kind of power do you have in the engines? 
Well, there's 215 horsepower engines okay. there. Okay. Um, now, that doesn't add up to 230 horsepowers because of the drag and the resistance and whatever else of that course. happens. So you're talking about two thir- maybe two-thirds of that, three-quarters of that total okay. power is what we'd have. But it's in speed terms, gives us about 34 knots, 35 knots, weather and sea conditions <laughs> dictating yes. what you can actually practically do. And that's really what the aim is. It's to keep the speed at that because the way we operate is not really in a, in a radius range from the station, hmm. but in a time. Okay. We, don't, we don't use miles or nautical miles or anything else. We use time. So we can steam for an hour hmm. at top speed to wherever we need to go. We can have an hour on site there okay. and it gives us an hour to get home. So we've got three hours of fuel and that's how we... That's how we measure it. And that allows for, you know, if the sea's very rough. Yes. If the weather's very bad, you know, an hour won't take you as far as it would of on a course. flat calm day with the yeah. wind behind you going downhill. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so that's... That's a very practical method, all right. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Is there communication equipment here then in this... Uh... One of the things that I'm most fond of in this particular boat as an upgrade from... From the, pre- the last boats we had were great. Sure. But this boat was upgraded to an Atlantic 85 and it has an internal comms system in the okay. helmets. Oh, fantastic. And it's something I didn't anticipate, but when you're out there and the wind is blowing and there's a lot of noise going on and there's a lot of slamming or splashing or whatever, to actually be able to communicate with somebody without raising your voice, it really makes a huge difference yes, to, the, to the anxiety levels on board and to being able to keep everything cool and logical and of sort of course slow you're burning. not being required to shout or, exactly or, or because naturally once you start yeah. to shout you're, you're already beginning to um, get a bit pumped up yes. yourself yeah so i didn't anticipate that when that change came in but yeah it's a fabulous one it's really very reassuring for the people you're rescuing as well if you're not roaring at each other exactly. and yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. Yeah, they don't feel like they're already um, in trouble with us. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> because people are reluctant to call us. They don't want to be seen to be in trouble. Does the amount of gear on the boat change, uh, say, through the season, putting in different amounts of equipment or types of equipment, say, in the winter than you would in the summer? Or is it kind of, you keep it, because I suppose I'd imagine you want to know exactly what's on the boat at all times. Everything is, to, to make any change on the boat requires a lot of decision-making, anything uh, because you need to jump on board, know exactly where everything is, and even in the worst of conditions, you need to be able to blindfold it, put your hand on whatever it is you need. Sure. So it would be a huge disadvantage to be changing things around the place. It would be dangerous. So it takes a lot of decisions before anything, like even a, a pencil gets moved, there's war over it, <laughs> because we need to know where everything is at all times. And one of, the, one of the beauties of that standardisation that level of standardisation is that across the entire fleet, any of these Atlantic 85s should, to a large degree, be identical. So I could step onto a lifeboat okay. in a different station and it would be the exact same as the one we have here and the layout would be the exact same. Or, God forbid, if this boat needed to go away to be changed out, a replacement boat would come that would be exactly laid out as this one. Fantastic. And then there's real nerds amongst us who will argue the difference between the different boats. But sometimes it's how wide the tubes are glued on on the outside, okay. <laughs> how fast she turns. So. so as a helm, you would feel a difference in the handling of the boat? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
Same as you would in your car. You know, if you changed, if you sat into somebody else's car or, you know, something that you hadn't been driving before. They're tiny, tiny little differences, but... So we've, we've moved back behind the helm position. Uh, and is this a sort of a navigation position then? Yes, the helm position is there in, in front of us. And then behind that, there are two seats where there are two operators here who have access to plotter and radar information. Great. So when these screens are on, uh, generally speaking, navigation is done on the port-hand side. That's just our own protocol. And the radar is on this side. So, but you can switch those over and back to the different screens. So it means that these two people here basically are navigating. Everybody has access to the VHF radio, uh, but the actual set is here at the navigator's sort of seat. Um, and here there's a direction finding equipment as well that will show you if somebody else uses their VHF, this will actually light up in the direction the signal's coming from. So ah, that's okay. really handy for us sometimes. Yeah. You can actually get a sense of what direction uh, the casualty might be in. But if you want to open up the seat, and then we've got under the seat, we, we, every, every little corner is used. So we've got searchlights that plug in to the boat itself, extra torches, we've got night vision goggles. Uh, what else have we got down here? An air horn. Binoculars, spare hoods, neoprene hoods, in case somebody is feeling particularly chilly. And uh, yeah, usually a bottle of water or two for the crew as well. Stashed under there. Here we have a throw bag. So without, if we can't actually get close enough to somebody and they're in a, in a suitable condition to be able to help themselves with a little assistance, we can throw the throw bag and, uh, and get them back to us that way. There's knives positioned throughout the boat. You'll see that. And okay. Sometimes people think that's a bit strange when you've got a rubber boat and there's knives everywhere. But basically, there's a knife everywhere. There's a rope because ropes are a critical part of our operations, but every rope is a hazard as well. And if something goes wrong with a rope, you just want to have a knife there to sort that out. Uh, so when you come back further, then we've got the engines. And at either side of those, again, we've used every last inch of space on the A-frame. So on one side here, we've got an oxygen kit so that we can deliver oxygen, obviously therapeutic for first aid. And on the other side is a rollout stretcher, which has been specially developed by the RNLI to fit neatly, to be waterproof, to be all the things that we were screaming blue murder about um, that wasn't working on previous versions. So in fairness, they listen and they reconfigure things all the time, according to the feedback from crews. This orange bag is actually the capsize bag. So that we can inflate if the boat overturns okay. and it will completely right the boat off its own bat. It, that, is that something that's, does it automatically detect when it's capsized or do you, you inflate it manually? No, okay. it doesn't. It's, everything is quite mechanical, surprisingly, more than you'd expect. Uh, but what does happen automatically when you capsize is that the carburetors and the engines have been altered to have a little mercury switch in them. And when that passes a certain angle, the, it will close off the carburetor, so okay. no salt water will get in there. So in theory, once the boat's rewrited, it should be able to start immediately because the, the, the carb hasn't been flooded with salt water. Okay. So if you want to look and see how that's actually inflated, we can go back down Great. again. Yeah, thank you. If there's... Yeah. Uh, so we were talking there about the writing bag for the capsize on the A-frame. 
So we're down standing at the back of the boat now. You can see from underneath that there are a couple of different ropes here that you can pull on and they're written upside down. Ah, uh, <laughs> yeah. A dead giveaway that they're for using when something's upside down. Uh, so yeah, there's a sea anchor release here. So I, I mentioned the sea anchor, the drogue at the bow of the boat initially. Yes. So when you pull this from outside of the boat, from at the stern, that will actually release the sea anchor at the bow. Ah, so straight okay. away, you get some semblance of control over the craft, even though you're outside of it and it's upside down, because it will start to float into the wind start to go head to wind and it will end up in a more controlled, stable state right. for when it comes up again. And the idea is that it doesn't right itself and then just capsize again straight away. Um, so that can be released from out here. So if the boat were to go over, all of the crew will assemble here at the stern. Um, there's a line that here or on the other side that you pull out and everybody just holds on to and the person closest to the boat then when everybody is safe and accounted for will pull that writing bag line and that will automatically be released then and uh, the plan is that the boat after a couple of minutes will write itself up once that inflates it's like a huge big sausage that's actually nearly wider than the than the boat itself okay and yeah we would all train with writing the boat as well when we're over in pool at the lifeboat college there on training courses and it sort of it looks like it's doing nothing for a couple of minutes and just when you're about to poke a finger to see <laughs> what's happening it suddenly like quite suddenly uh, writes itself with a bang so it's it's a fairly violent action when it happens which be glad to see it the right way of course the same. yes <laughs> and at that point then uh, the crew will climb back in I can see even just looking at the boat, I mean, it's, it's spotless. I mean, everything seems to be... So I'm sure that doesn't happen by accident. No, that does <laughs> not happen by accident. Absolutely not. No, the amount of hours that go into maintaining this boat and keeping it as it is. But there's very tight protocols. So every time we go out on training or out on a call out, as soon as the boat is recovered back into the station, it, the shore crew are here with warm sudsy water, to wash the boat down, it gets put back outside the boat hall again. It gets completely hosed down to get all the salt off it. Um, and on top of all of that, really, it gets refueled. And if there's any defects, they're reported and everything is put back to ship shape because the whole idea is it's ready to be launched in moments if needed. Of course. So it's in a constant state of readiness, basically. The donor, the owner I get a lot of money in, uh, in wills. And the donor was a, a Dennis Tong, his wife was Sheila. And as far as I know, he was an engineer in Erdington in, in the Midlands. And they retired to the South Coast and uh, got involved in, in uh, helping the Orn alive. But when, when he passed away, he left uh, enough money for four lifeboats. So we got the Sheila and Dennis Tong, the first one. And the fourth one went into Loch Ness, where the monster is in, in Scotland, <laughs> uh, last year, I think. Yeah, so that's it. It was some bequest, but it's an incredible boat, yeah. So we've, we've seen the changing rooms where the crew come in, get topped out, and look at the boat, hull on the boat, and now we just go upstairs, a uh, couple of things up here to, to talk through. So this is what we call the comms room, so if there's a, it's basically the station office, uh, all the computer gear, our paging systems, everything is here. 
But if there's a shout um, or when the boat is on training, uh, there's always somebody on the radio keeping in contact with the boat. Uh, the Coast Guard have a protocol of, uh, we call them every 15 minutes, just basically to check in to say that ops are normal and where we are and where we're heading to. It's, uh, if we miss those calls, the Coast Guard will send up a helicopter looking for us. So it's a safety precaution. Okay, it's nice to know you have that. It is yeah. nice to know that. It's great that we have a great working relationship with Head Coast Guard and they, they look out for us and we do our best for them. The... Um, so we'll have a radio operator. So generally, there's a couple of shore crew who've launched the boat. They'll come up then and man the radio. Um, normal procedure, everything that's said on the radio is written down and kept in a log. And uh, it gets a bit more um, complicated when there's a shout on in that you'll have, generally, you might have one of the launch authorities here who will keep in contact with the Coast Guard on the phone and listen to the radio as what's going on. The radio operator and generally we have one other person who, who literally keeps an eye to the charts and tracks where the boat is and um, it's a very very unlikely feature but it is something we train for that if all the boats equipment failed and um, there's a ready reckoner of how fast and how far the boat will go at different engine revs okay so the shore crew here can actually plot a course for the boat to get back yeah. and if they follow their compass and the engines at a certain rev and that's practiced during quiet time, so you can, you can, uh, but it's it's a, another safety thing, basically, the way getting the boat home if needs be. Of course. And it's always, again, if the boat is out of contact and it's low tide and they're up in Sligo docks, it's more than likely a radio problem. Um, if they're out of contact and they're at the back of a reef on a bad day, it could be something very different. So it's, there's sort of an acute awareness of what's going on at the time. After the tour, I sat down with Willie and Etna and also Tim Doran, who is a water safety rep for the RNLI. We discussed the day-to-day running of the station, what happens when a call or a shout, as they refer to it, comes through, and also what personally drew them in to volunteering. So we've had a great tour of the station here in Sligo. How many team members does the Sligo Lifeboat have? We have um, 26, well, basically we're split into operations, fundraising, visits, and education, safety. So there's a number of strings to the boat. In total, 60 involved altogether in the station. But of those, 26 would be what we'd call the operational team who actually man the lifeboat or get it to sea. So that's the, the, the split between people. And a good mix of male, female, and ages, yeah. Great. And is that primarily uh, voluntary, or are there, are there full-time staff? It's all voluntary, yeah. From every, every single person involved in the station is volunteer. How long does it train to become a member of the of the crew? Um, the simple answer is you, you, you keep training. You never stop training. There's a, there's a, um, a competency-based training system which you go through. It would probably take you the best part of a year to be kind of safe in terms of being afloat. Probably two years maybe to be fully competent or two to three years. And then once you hit that, you just continually refresh all of the things. So the training never stops basically. It's, it's, uh, and it's very, it's very structured and it's, it's reviewed. So every incident that a lifeboat goes through, every shelter we go out on, there's a report filled in. And they're constantly looking at trends and say, well actually we need to train more on rope work or we need to train more on navigation. So it's kind of dynamic. The training just doesn't, doesn't stop. It's a feral commitment I think. 
boat goes out twice a week training and then you have other training, shore training along with that and there's a lot of, increasingly there's a lot of stuff being made available online now which is dead handy. I guess in addition to the training then as well is just that accumulated experience and knowledge that you're getting by going out and, and learning every time. Yeah, absolutely. How important is local knowledge for the crew in terms of knowing where areas that there may be, say, dangerous conditions, dangerous tides or currents, or, or maybe areas that you know are difficult to perform rescues in? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's absolutely vital. And it's, it's something that the RLI can't train you in. It has to be trained locally. So the helms are the people who do the training. Um, they've built up the experience over the years. They're, they're working on experience from generations in the area. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, we have a lot of tricky spots, you know, a particularly tricky spot is not far from the station between two islands where you get a big tidal race. But yeah, the local knowledge is vital to the, to the whole thing. How long, Willie, yourself, were you involved with the, with the, with the crew here? So over 20 years. Um, started out fundraising and then at 13 years as the operations manager. And was there, was there something that, that drew you to, to get involved with the crew? The promise it was only going to be an hour a week. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. Um, the village here, Ross's Point, has a really long tradition, merchant navy tradition. So even before there was a station here, the RMLI was always something close to everybody. And when the station came, I retired early and says, time to give something back. So threw my hat in here you know, for a while. And Ethan, you're a, you're a helm here. How long have you been involved with the uh, lifeboat crew here? Um, I've been on the crew here for 25 years. So I joined when I was 12. Yeah, I've been here from day one. So I was lucky enough to end up joining up as the new, just as the station was being established here. A very exciting time in the village. I would have always spent my life messing about in boats around here. And honest to God, when an ad went up in the shop or in one of the local pubs here to say a meeting around setting up a lifeboat station, all interested, come down. I went down thinking, oh, the, the crew will need somebody to make sandwiches and cups of tea if they come in late at night and I can do that and found myself as a helm on the boat instantly. I was captured by the scruff of the neck and told, you can do that. With, with the lifeboat established that long, how has say this summer so far compared to other years, has it been busy or? You can't really compare that. It just, the pattern changes every year. Yeah. And amazingly, I think, correct me Willie if I'm wrong, but by the end of the year, we tend to have the same number yeah. of call outs every year, but they just don't all happen at the same time, at the yeah. same time or in any predictable fashion. We would, we would say that the, um, our call outs predominantly are to leisure. You know, we, we, we have gotten commercial call-outs to trawlers and to a, a ship, but um, most of it is leisure. So that predominantly is weather-related. You know, although we had a relatively, during the three good weeks we had, it was relatively quiet. When the weather turned, we were mad busy again. So we, as Etna said, you just can't touch it from, take it from one week to the next. So would you say that there's certain weather conditions that you look out for in terms of like say if you know the weather's going to be warm and sunny that you'll probably have more people using the water or maybe vice versa in the winter if it's severe weather there might be as many people but if you have to do a rescue it's going to be that bit more challenging yeah i suppose it, after after a few years of doing it you sort of you do have pardon the pun you do have a weather eye out yeah. all the time 
um, and you'd be conscious of what weather is coming and, and somewhere in your brain you'd have just a little maybe maybe that'll mean um, not that I'm not sitting on tender hooks the whole time or anything but mm-hmm. one of the things would be you know when major storms yeah. are forecast and you get people going down to the shore to witness this storm that would yes, be one yeah, yeah. that you'd kind of you'd see coming and you'd go oh yeah. but the reality of it is that's those storms are beyond our capabilities to launch it, so we can't even do anything. Yeah. And then, as we said, if you see if you see fine weather coming in, there's a fine spell you sort of expect. Yeah. Or if you see uh, novelty inflatables being sold in, partic- <laughs> in particular outlets. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You'd have that. The other the other thing, and it, it always strikes me, is that you know I'd, every time, and literally every time I go out of the house, I'll take a spin down the stairs, just look at the bay. And I'll invariably meet one of the helms doing the same thing. You, the weather is constantly in your head as to what it's doing. Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Is it likely to get worse? You know, that, that sort of weather is a big thing in our, in our consciousness all the time. Every station and every location has its own idiosyncrasies around the weather yeah. as well, obviously. So we're on a, on a wide, flat estuary here, yeah. but with two islands blocking mm. the flow of water in and out on a tidal basis. So if you get wind against tide, mm. the channel just outside here can yeah. be really, really difficult, really horrible. A short, high chop in it that's really difficult to navigate. Do you train for specific types of sea states or weather conditions? You know, say, you know that like if particular wind conditions or tidal conditions that you know could be tricky to work in? Not really, <laughs> because I suppose once the consciousness of what the hazard is is there it your your driving skills are going to be transferable across between different weather conditions but you would you would practice driving in heavy weather conditions and we've got we would know locations here where we can train that it's just one little bar that you can you can pop in onto and you have a very safe route back out of if you're trying to teach somebody who's brand new to it mm-hmm. um, so we don't go out in horrible weather just to train but if the wind gets up a bit and if the sea gets up a bit, you'll find somewhere to go and do that useful work. There's no point in going out to help somebody in conditions that you've never driven in. Of course. Mm-hmm. Are there certain uh, weather products or forecasts that that you consult regularly or that you find useful? I have one. Metair. And I don't use the right answer. I don't, I don't <laughs> use anything else, genuinely. Yeah. There's all sorts of things surfers use, magic seaweed, and everybody will tell you, and there are probably apps for this, that, and the other. I rely absolutely on Metair Sea Area Forecast and the general weather, and I look at the charts, and I have a look at the charts myself to see what's going on. But we are nerds, so we do debate all the different weather apps yeah. that are out there. I'm sure you do the same Absolutely. thing yourself. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even, even internally, we run a thing called an ensemble forecast, which is basically where we run our weather models multiple times mm-hmm. and you know there'll be a slightly different outcome each yeah, time yeah. and then you kind of you can get in a sense of how likely a certain outcome is yeah. so then you're, you're kind of doing that as well but you're just looking at different yeah. sources of weather information yeah. so it's it's definitely recommended the other, the other thing we do is that again it's it's not that the weather can be totally localized but there is a localized element to it and we're conscious of that as well you know so the, the other thing that does affect us is that you know you can have relatively good weather but if you have a blooming storm out in the Atlantic, you know, a massive swell which impacts on us. Mm. You know, as Etna said, it's a shallow bay, so you get a big fetch coming in. So it's, um, it's, yeah. And it's very easy for one thing to stack on top of another. That's how all accidents it's happen. Indeed, it's yeah, never one thing. Things. It's yeah. a series of small things. So I do remember one time 
being over at way down the south shore here on the bay and a series of things went wrong. Our communications broke down um, so we could only communicate with the helicopter which was above us. It had to go back and refuel so we had no communications. It was beginning to get dark. The weather was beginning to deteriorate. So the weather was just the cherry on top of all of the other things that were beginning to go wrong. So that was a long, hard slog home now, I have to say, um, in deteriorating conditions. But yeah, it was perfectly fine. We were safe because we have that decision-making protocol sort of in place. And are there thresholds in terms of weather or sea state that uh, determine whether you can go out or not on a, on yeah. a call? Yeah, there is the, the, the book will say 4-7 in daylight hours, 4-6 at night is the boat's capability. Um, there are margins around that which the launch authorities have to look at. Um, primarily, as I said, if you get an easterly, an easterly eight here, mm. might be a lot easier to launch into for a run into town than a westerly seven. So it's, it's really course. just dynamic looking at. We have, we have um, I suppose, first and foremost, in any request to launch, the crew safety is the, the thing that is in our heads. And, you know, we shouldn't, but we worry until the boat comes back um, because you've given that authority to launch. But we have a, what they call a triple lock system. So the first lock is that the Coast Guard know the boat, know the capability of the boat and really wouldn't ask us to launch in something that they think is, is beyond our capability. But they'll always ring just in case the local, as I said, the local conditions might mitigate against that. The second one is the launch authority who has to take the decision whether the boat goes or not. And the third one then is the helm, because once the boat's at sea, the helm's in charge. And either before they go, they can say to the launch authority, look at, you know, have another think about this. Or once they're out, they can say, no, it's, or any of the crew can mm -hmm. say, look, it's beyond us, we'll come back. Mm -hmm. That's the, the experience there then of the, of the local knowledge and, uh, and the yeah. experience that you've built up. Yeah, there. and you're relying, you're relying on, and I, like, I rely on it un unquestionably, and I've never had any issue with it. The helm's decision-making. Is critical, mm. and they're the ones who are they're, they're out there, you know. And I have absolute faith in any of the helms to say they won't risk the group, you know, they'll come back. Mm. Yeah. It doesn't happen, has happened a few times, but generally, where it has happened, it's we've been tasked to a boat that is adrift with nobody in it, so there's no life at risk. Okay, so you're trying to do this balancing, is it worth risking the crew for of course. property? Basically, yeah. Yeah. when a call comes through, say someone rings 999 or yeah. 112 and it's clear that they need a lifeboat or they've requested a lifeboat then what happens how does that call come through to you yeah basically the, the coast guard will either we have, we have what we call launch authority so they're designated people who can launch the lifeboat so the coast guard contacts whoever's on duty generally what they do is they page us we have a, they can page us into separately from the crew so your pager goes off and you ring Malin and you say okay well, and they tell you what it is You'll discuss it and say, okay, we think that's we can do that. We launched the lifeboat, so we hit the, the pagers. All the pagers go off, crew come down. And generally, that's the way it works. Occasionally, we'll get notified the other way around, where a member of the public might see one of the crew and say, look, there's somebody in bother over here. We can bypass the system, then we can launch ourselves and ring Malin and say, we're just after launching, here's what we're doing. But generally, it's Malin asking us to launch. And when you arrive in at the station, I know we had a, a tour earlier and you could see the, 
the changing room is kind of the first thing you come into. Yes. So I guess getting into your gear is the first thing that happens. Yeah, it sort of it, it flows from the front door. So you you come in the front door and straight into the the changing room. And naturally, you can't launch the boat without the information on what you're going to and without having a few other pieces, like weather, um, what the tides are doing, a few key pieces of information that make the difference. Uh, but the immediate thing is to just get suited up. And generally speaking, while you're doing that, Willie or some whoever's the launch authority will arrive, open the door and shout in what's going on. So everybody's getting changed at the one time and it happens amazingly quickly I have no idea if you asked me to get into a dry suit now it would probably take me 15 minutes sure. but I can yeah. do it in three somehow <laughs> and the pager goes off um, and then we will always just pause for a moment to review the weather conditions the tide and whatever we're going out into just cool things and just to make a plan and make sure that everybody knows what's going on and then other than that it's, it's a fairly rapid process the launch Is there a, a target timeline for for getting the boat out. Yeah, 10 minutes from when the pager goes off. Okay. And we generally hit it's it. It's very quick. Yeah, okay. it is quick, yeah. yeah. We and have, are we you have hit it in three or four minutes, but I wonder about um, the hobbies and lives of the crew here <laughs> <laughs> within three or four minutes. Sometimes <laughs> you get sitting. lucky, they're all on the pier chatting about fishing or something. <laughs> right. They're in the door, yeah. Generally 10 minutes, yeah, which is quick, yeah. And are you gathering information then as you're maybe travelling out to the to the site of where the call is, is for. Yeah, we launch with very little information because usually you have very little information to begin with because the process is so rapid. So that's why it's so important. One of the reasons it's so important to have people here in the station gathering that background information, being able to feed it onto us. So as long as we know basically what we're going to and what direction we're going in, um, then we will, we'll just head off and we'll gather the information over the radio, over the VHF radio as we go there. Who, who would you be in contact over the radio at that time? Uh, once, once there's a call out in progress, we're usually just directly in contact with the Coast Guard in Malinhead. However, we can also speak to the station if there's more locally specific information or if somebody who has witnessed an incident arrives into the station or there's something specific like that. But yeah, the general protocol would be directly to Malin. I think communications is really, it it's becomes very critical once the boats are float because they say that the, usually you have, Malin themselves will have relatively basic information in the beginning, you know, so it's a swimmer has gone missing or is overdue in Ross's Point, that will be honed down to they went in in the last 15 minutes what they were wearing mm. a, a general, a better idea of where they went in that type of information, and that's usually gathered either by Malin directly or sometimes from the station here. We ring Malin, they ring the boat. Generally, the communications between the, the boat is with the Coast Guard, and we communicate with the Coast Guard on the phone here. But there's a log kept here yeah. of every piece of communication to and from the boat. Oh, okay. So there's somebody on a listening watch here all yeah. the time when okay. the boat's afloat. Okay. So all of that information is logged, and the picture gets, gets filled out yeah. and recorded. On a, on a previous podcast, I was talking to members of the Rescue 118 helicopter crew mm. and also some uh, mountain rescue uh, team members as well. Do you like, join forces with those fairly regularly enough? And how does that call get made? Is it, do, do well, they request you? The, the team leader in the mountain rescue, so we do work together. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to hear it. Yeah. Yeah, we have two, two of our former helms are on Rescue 118, so there's a very close working relationship between all the, all the rescue agencies. 
Um, in general terms, if, if the boat is out, the boat may say, look, we need the helicopter. Or, and if the helicopter is available, the Coast Guard will task it. Um, but the, the helicopter will be communicating with the boat and the Coast Guard. So the, the fairly, and then, you know, in quiet times when we have them, we can train together and, you, you know, the practice that, that work with the helicopter. We're particularly fortunate here, yeah. I think, that we have got the Sligo Leitrim Mountain Rescue Team yes. base is in town here. And the helicopter is based in Strand, yeah. they're just they're the a mile away from us here. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so we have very, we, we get great opportunities to train with them, and we do end up working together a lot. Yeah. For the Sligo station, is there a call out that you get more frequently than others? Like, is there certain types of call outs for swimmers or surfers or, or fisher fishing boats? Is there, is there something that tends to happen more often? Than I don't suppose so, really. Well, I suppose every station has its own kind of profile mm, in yeah. a way because every. Every coastal location has its own profile, and ours would be mainly leisure. Yeah, the general, the general mix of swimmers, surfers, kiteboarders, motorboats out fishing with engine breakdowns or running out of petrol, the occasional yachting bother. It's that, you know, that sort of. General. Occasionally, you get anglers. Occasionally, you get anglers. Um, and people off the shore. Get, or yeah, the we, river get, we get people getting cut off on the shore angling. And occasionally we get called out to the strand to come here. Of course. People have gotten bothered with the tide coming in. Is there a particular call, say maybe you first, Willie, from your time here, a particular call out that, uh, that you know, stands in your memory as being maybe particularly challenging or, or uh, particularly memorable? It's, it's actually hard to pick out any. Um, you know, there were, there were call-outs involving divers, there were call-outs involving swimmers that you'd say, you know, that was a close one. We, yes. we, we earned our bread that day. Um, and there, the, the sadder call-outs where, you of know, you're, you're out to recover a person who's deceased, unfortunately. And they're not nice, and you, you remember those ones, you know. So it's, uh, right, have you any of them? No, I would agree with, yeah, everything that Willie says there, but I suppose... Also, the ones that that immediately jump into my memory would be the ones where I increased my local knowledge of the area mm. <laughs> on a call out. So maybe you, you just find yourself in a spot where in certain conditions waves were breaking differently than they normally would or you just found yourself surprised mm. by the conditions even though you've been doing it for a decade or more. And following on from that, it means that every time you launch the boat you're on full alert, personally on full alert because... I know I have learned things on call-outs that I should have I should have learned in training, but you can't see everything. Of course. So. So to be a good member, crew member, you really need to have that sort of growth mentality or learning mentality, or that you're sort of able to pick things up every time you go out. Really. I don't think lifeboating gives you any choice if you don't have that growth mentality. There's a Darwinian element to things. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think the ones that, that increasingly. You know, we're get, we are seeing an increase in calls to swimmers, and they're really time critical. You know, you've got somebody in a boat that's broken down, you know, if they've got an anchor out at a time, but swimmers generally don't have a lot of time, so they're the ones that personally the worry me most, you know, in terms of being able to, being able to affect a rescue, but of course it's the way it is. The, the work that you do is so important, and obviously, ideally, avoiding the need, the need for a call out in the first place would be great and that's where obviously water safety yeah. comes into it and uh, the RNLI is involved in, in water safety awareness also, isn't that right Tim? It is, yeah. So we do a lot of uh, proactive messaging as well to try and reach people before they go into the water, whether they're sailing or motorboating or swimming, whatever it is they're doing. 
that people are equipped with the knowledge to be able to keep themselves safe um, and also if you see someone in difficulty that you're able to help them as well. What are some of the main campaigns in terms of maybe awareness that, that you're involved in at the moment? So the main campaign that we have this year and we've had for previous years is called Float to Live and it's based on extensive research going that's the one piece of advice that we want to tell everyone. So if you do end up in the water and you weren't planning on you know, going in or you're in difficulty, just try and remember float to live. And the reason being is that that's gonna give you time to control your breathing. Um, you know, the waters around here, all around Ireland and around the UK, they're usually average around 12 degrees, maybe all year. And anything under 15 degrees can cause cold water shock. So it's whenever you first enter that water, your breathing can go out of control and you can lose control of your limbs as well. So just that little bit of advice, float to live, gives you time to assess where you are and then to start to try and rescue yourself or signal for help as well. And you've been doing some good work recently with the GAA also, isn't that right? We have, yeah, with the GAA, the Gaelic Athletic mm-hmm. Association. So a few weeks ago, we were in Croke Park for one of the hurling semi-finals, and we did a little RNLI activation, a little takeover event. So we were able to share all of our messaging there with the 50,000 fans that were in the stadium. But we do an awful lot more work um, with local uh, football clubs, with hurling clubs, camogie clubs as well. And that's when volunteers from the lifeboat station go out there and they share that float to live messaging. So we deliver it to all ages, whether it's children, whether it's teenagers or adults as well. We just want to get that message out to as many people into those communities that you know maybe they aren't coastal maybe they haven't grown up getting into the water mm. um, we know unfortunately a lot of the drownings that happen across the island of ireland actually happen inland as well so that piece of knowledge again to keep harping on that float to live messages is what we're pushing are there different approaches when you're dealing with uh, messaging for recreational users of the water and then maybe people who work on the water fishermen or merchant uh, sailors things like that Yeah, so quite often we find if someone's livelihood is based on the water, they may have a lot of the training already. They'll probably have a lot of the information, a lot of the experience and a lot of the equipment that we're trying to, you know, get the messaging out for. Um, The opposite of that then is the recreational users. If someone's going into the water, it might be, look, it's a beautiful sunny day. The last thing on their mind is to check the weather or to, you know, go in, go for a swim with a buddy. Um, or if you're going out on a stand-up paddleboard to check the wind direction, things like that. And, you know, we want people to get out there to enjoy the water. It's an incredible resource we have all across the island. But just making sure you have that little bit of knowledge in the back of your head that could save your own life or could, could save somebody else's if you see that too. Fantastic. If, if someone, a member of the public, sees someone um, in an emergency situation, what's the, what's, the, what's the best thing they can do to help? straight away call 999 or 112 and ask for the Coast Guard and as uh, Ethna and as Willie said the Coast Guard will coordinate everything if they need to launch the lifeboat and get in touch with these guys they can if it's the helicopter if it's the local beach lifeguards if it's any of the other rescue teams so it's yeah call 999 or 112 and ask for the Coast Guard. There's there's obviously um a huge amount of work that, that, that goes on here and in, in other lifeboat uh, stations around uh, the country and, and in the UK as well. And as you've mentioned, it, it's a charity and, and the work is almost entirely voluntary. How can people contribute to, to the work that you do? What's the, is there, is there, what's the best way, if, if someone, well, our listeners are listening and they're like, we would like to help, what's the best way that they can help? I mean, there's any number of ways of helping. If you're remote and you're not near a lifeboat station or you're not near one of the inland stations, 
we always say, look, if you want to share that piece of messaging, that that float to live. Um, we do rely exclusively on legacies and donations. So we get no money whatsoever from government. If you are in a position, you know, you want to come and fundraise for us, or if you want to come down to the station, have a look at the shop and pick up something as well, please do. Um, if you're close by to your local lifeboat station, pop in and have a chat with the, the volunteers. They're always looking for people to, to volunteer. So I'm sure William Ethna could, could speak more. It's not just crew. They're looking for fundraisers. They're looking for education volunteers. There's lots of other options too. You don't have to have the pager. Yeah, I think a, a, lot, of, a lot of people there. We're lucky in that we have a great range of volunteers at the minute here. And uh, we started a few years back uh, visits, a visits team. And it was just extraordinary to us because, you know, we, we sort of sleep and drink light bulbs. So we think everybody knows about them, but loads of people have never been to a light bulb station. So we're averaging now about a thousand people a year coming through the station, just learning about the RLI and what we do. And uh, from that, we'll get volunteers, but we'll also get people who the next time they see a bucket on the street, may draw a couple of bob in or whatever. Um, so it is, it's, uh, it's trying, as I said, there's so many angles to it. If you want to help, apart from just giving financial help, there's lots and lots of ways you can help. And, and the RLI site, the website itself, uh, there's tons of opportunities on it. Well, it's been, it's been eye-opening to seeing uh, the level of professionalism here today and, and uh, it's been really interesting seeing the, the processes and procedures and the level of, of, of dedication that the team has so I really appreciate your time today thanks for coming on and having a chat. That's all for this episode my thanks again to the Sligo Bay Lifeboat crew for welcoming me to their station and giving a great insight into the vital work they do. If you'd like to learn more about the RNLI or how you can contribute visit rnli.org. As always, if you've any thoughts or questions on today's episode, you can get in touch on MetAaron's social channels or drop an email to podcast at met.ie. And if you're not already subscribed, you can do so wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm looking forward to speaking with you next time.